Faith and Politics, debate prep with RNS political reporter Jack Jenkins. The most likely way to, to guess someone's voting pattern isn't their religion, isn't even necessarily their race, or isn't even necessarily their economic status, it's their party affiliation. And now, there are also ways that you can still connect to certain voters in the same way that there's a kaleidoscope of ways that you can connect to any voter, and one of those is someone's faith. And if a faith is a component of your identity, whether you are a Hindu or a Buddhist or a white evangelical or a black Protestant, um, and you feel that a candidate gets that about you and can speak a similar language, that does tend to transition in to at least um, favorability, if not support, on Election Day. From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. The third round of Democratic Party debates shrinks the field of candidates down to 10. To break down how faith and religion is affecting the debates, we're speaking with RNS reporter Jack Jenkins about what voters of faith are seeking in their candidates and what candidates are trying to say to those voters. Jack Jenkins talks to our producer, Jay Woodward. Jack Jenkins, thanks for coming back to Beliefs. You know, you are our first repeat guest. We've asked you back because we've got the third Democratic primary debate coming up just this week. And I thought it would be a good time for us to check in with you and start sifting through um, a faith lens for some of these candidates. I think I'll start with this. There was an assistant professor of political science at Eastern Illinois University. He wrote an opinion piece for RNS just this week, and he made a a couple of pretty important assertions. And I bring them up because they feel like they're uh, opinions that are generally held. It's not just the writer, Ryan Burge. And I'll just read this to you. He says, Democrats have a God problem. Despite being a party that includes black Protestants who are some of the most religious Americans, and Hispanic Catholics, one of the few religious groups in the U.S. to be growing, Democrats still have trouble when it comes to talking about faith. They have struggled to mobilize the religious left into a voting bloc and have troubles connecting with white Christian voters, the majority of whom supported President Trump in the last election. And while Democrats do have the support of the so-called nuns, the growing group of Americans who have no religious affiliation, That group does not include particularly enthusiastic voters. There's a lot to unpack there, but let's start right at the top. Does the Democratic Party have trouble relating to and and representing black Protestants, Hispanic Catholics, and white Christians? Um, I think it kind of depends on what you mean by that. Um, I mean, and it also kind of depends on uh, what era of American politics you're referring to, right? So there's this myth that Democrats have always been terrible at faith outreach and that they are the secular party, et cetera, et cetera, which is a myth. Uh, people forget that actually, you know, people will often say, oh, the last great candidate to run who took faith seriously, they'll, they'll cite someone like Jimmy Carter, who, to be fair, definitely talks quite a bit about faith and takes faith very seriously. But one of the last candidates to run for president um, in the United States who was a Democrat who took faith pretty seriously was Barack Obama, um, the last Democratic president. He he did so. He ran actually one of the largest um, faith outreach operations of any presidential campaign in recent American political history, Um, had staff specifically um, designated for different teams. You know, he talked about faith pretty frequently on the stump. You know, he took faith really seriously. The, the, the problem was that I think um, for a lot of different commentators, they there's been a lot of difficulty, not necessarily on the part of politicians who were able to speak to, say, black Protestants, but how the media portrays 
um, those voters, right? So mm-hmm. people will often refer to quote unquote values voters and what they really mean by that are white evangelical Protestants. They don't include, for instance, that black Protestants are, you know, deeply also have values and religious values and are also a very active voting bloc. Now, that does not mean that Barack Obama or any Democratic candidate has done um, faith outreach perfectly in each iteration or each campaign. I think one of the criticisms, for instance, of Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign was that regardless of whether or not they had a faith faith outreach apparatus, they did have a staffer who was at least part-time um, or at least partly assigned to faith outreach. There are many who who alleged that it certainly wasn't adequate enough, and you didn't see um, as much turnout as you um, as people would have liked there to be among uh, you know f- uh, voters who are religious who fall on the democratic end of the spectrum. And then, of course, there's the other question of whether or not Democrats can or even want to appeal to say. Um, white evangelical Protestants, which are a very difficult group to turn, and even Obama, you know, his efforts only only made certain inroads into those groups. And then, of course, there's white Catholics, which are a different group altogether. Um, that you know, some argue that uh, Democrats aren't doing enough to invest time and resources in. But that all brings us up to the current political um, race when we have the 2020 Democratic candidates, and it really does look like this go round. A lot of those candidates have, have learned the lessons, at least from the 2016 campaign, and are investing significantly more in outreach to religious voters, although they aren't necessarily just white evangelical voters. They seem to be looking beyond just that category. Mm. I've got to ask a pretty simple question. Um, are people voting their faith? Are they voting their denomination, their values? What is, what is it that they're trying to do with faith outreach? And is it working? This is now. This is like the six million dollar question, and, and I do think most um, political scientists would say that for the vast majority of religious Americans, they rarely vote specifically because of their faith. Right? In terms of uh, denominational affiliation, isn't necessarily a, an excellent um, indicator of how someone will vote. What's often more indicative is other categories or other general categories that belong to. So, for instance. Um, I've written about in the past, as have um, a few different uh, social scientists, the impact of what's often called Christian nationalism, which is kind of the fusion of, you know, uh, often mainline Protestantism, I'm sorry, evangelical Protestantism, although it can also include mainline Protestantism and um, Catholicism and uh, patriotism, but specifically nationalistic patriotism and the, inter- the idea that America um, should be a Christian nation. And affinity for, for a different series of beliefs that are connected to Christian nationalism is actually probably a better indicator of how someone will vote than just what, you know, what, what kind of Methodist they are. Um, and that seems to be kind of a religious moniker, a religious identity. It's more tied to identity than it is a specific theology, if that makes any sense. And so, and to this day, I mean, the most likely way to, to guess someone's voting pattern isn't their religion, isn't even necessarily their race, or isn't even necessarily their economic status, it's their party affiliation. And now, there are also ways that you can still connect to certain voters in the same way that there's a kaleidoscope of ways that you can connect to any voter, and one of those is someone's faith. And if a faith is a component of your identity, whether you are a Hindu or a Buddhist or a white evangelical or a black Protestant, um, and you feel that a candidate gets that about you and can speak a similar language, that does tend to transition in to at least um, favorability, if not support, on Election Day. Interesting. Okay, so... um... 
here we are. We are thundering down the highway into uh, a new year, and the fall is spreading out ahead of us. And we've narrowed the field so that we're down to 10 candidates that we're looking at for the debates. Do you think we're going to start hearing about some of the more difficult questions to answer about faith and about belief and about, you know, deeply held commitments that some of these candidates have? Uh, yes and no. So uh, two candidates have proven themselves willing to bring up uh, two of them. Let me rephrase that. Two of the 10 candidates that made this debate have proven themselves willing to bring up faith unprompted in previous debates. And that's Cory Booker and Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Both of them have either cited scripture or faith in previous debates um, when discussing any number of policies. And part of that is because for both of those men, um, they have a part of their campaigns has been, you know, discussion of religion and discussion of their faith. I mean, uh, Cory Booker, you know, uh, in the last couple of weeks d- delivered a speech in Charleston, South Carolina at the AME Church, which was the site of the tragic um, 2015 shooting that left nine African-American worshipers dead at the hands of a white supremacist. And he delivered a speech there that... You, you know, we often talk about how sometimes a, a politician can deliver a sermon. This was really uh, like very close to a sermon. He invoked scripture repeatedly. Um, he invoked faith over and over and over again throughout the course of that speech where he was decrying both gun violence and racism. And then when he spoke later at a black church pack event in, um, in Georgia, he did so while giving an even more fervent version of a speech that ended up getting a call and response from the crowd and dropping, I'd lost count at five scripture references in like as many minutes. Um, and so he's been willing to kind of discuss this ad nauseum, as has Pete Buttigieg, who has made discussions of faith central. Although I will note one interesting thing about Buttigieg's approach and when he's brought faith up in previous debates, it's often in contrast to what he argues is um, you know, the, the faith or lack of expressive faith um, from uh, Donald Trump and Vice President Mike Pence. So uh, Pete Buttigieg is often very quick to draw contrasts between the faith that he claims and that of people he that he's he's argued are hypocritical in their faith, whether that is Trump um, and or Pence themselves or their supporters, um, you know, evangelical um, leaders who have uh, hitched their wagon to the Trump administration, as it were. And so those two in particular, do I, I would you know if they brought up some faith in the debate, I would not be at all surprised. I remember that moment in the second debate where Pete Buttigieg took a took a stand, as it were, mm-hmm. when he denounced the hypocritical aspect of people of faith. Is that common to hear that sort of thing? To you know to call out other people in the way that they express their faith. It hasn't necessarily been that common in democratic circles for a while. Now, I should note that he certainly wasn't the only person who has said something similar to that in this campaign field. Um, Before she dropped out um, of the race, um, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand actually had very harsh words for the GOP, arguing that it wasn't the party of God and for Trump. Um, in particular, um, you know, who I believe she said he's you know, not of God or not. You know, she, she at least impugned the credibility of his faith. Um, and, and, you know, you, you saw similar you've seen similar deflecting movement um, r- phrases and references from other candidates as well. But it, it does seem to be in particular because of the Trump administration and in particular issues of immigration. Uh, you know, the, the separation of families along the border in particular mm. 
has drawn this moral line in the sand for a lot of people of faith, even people of faith who don't necessarily sit in a liberal context. Even conservatives who are um, who may have even supported Trump have been morally appalled by the separation of families along the border and the treatment of immigrants. And so that, in part because of the rash of activism by faith-based activists along the border and throughout the country in reaction to uh, the, te- the detention of families and the separation of families, and in part because, you know, from the perspective of Democrats, the Trump administration has just made drawing these moral contact- contrasts really easy. Um, from their perspective. And so, if, if anything, you know, if, if you talk to an average liberal Democrat, the Trump administration has essentially ceded the moral high ground in those conversations. And so, mm-hmm. it has made it in, in the vacuum of faith based language that otherwise would have you know, belonged to the religious right, um, a group that, for lack of a better term, is the religious left, has started to, you know, claim the moral high ground. Um, around immigration. So that's often when you hear, that's when, when Pete Buttigieg referenced faith in that debate, he was talking about immigration. Um, and you'll hear similar things from other candidates in the same instance. Uh, Kamala Harris is actually, um, when speaking to, to television um, in South Carolina, made a similar reference, again, when talking about immigration. So I think while, to your original question, it's not common for Democrats to kind of call into question the faith of their opponents in a presidential election. I think this go-round, um, because of the moral arguments that surround the Trump administration and the, the, the outrage among many people of faith over the actions of this administration, Democrats feel more comfortable with God talk, at least when it comes to condemning um, the actions of Trump. Right. So here's a, a thing that we're talking about that I don't remember us talking about four years ago, and that would be this religious left. Who are we talking about when when we're describing the religious left? Is this a new term? So I think <laughs> the truth about the religious left is that, one, uh, many people who would who might be labeled as uh, leaders of the religious left would never want to be called the religious left um, because hmm. they think hmm. that's too limiting. And I think part of that is because of the reaction to the um, influence of the religious right. You know, people who are progressive and religious don't want to, you know, just create a progressive version of what the religious right was. Now, to be perfectly honest, I don't think that's possible. I think, you know, when you were talking about Ryan Burge's article, and it says, you know, Democrats have struggled to muster a religious left to counter the religious right, I think that misunderstands what the religious left actually is. Because there's nothing on the left that that uh, matches the power of the religious right, because the left isn't organized the way the right is. The left, more so than um, conservatives and and the Republican Party, is a coalition of coalitions. It's 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 many different groups working together, sometimes out of convenience, sometimes out of shared solidarity. And the religious left is one of these movements that tends to touch many of those different coalitions at once, right? So environmental activists can, in quote, Pope Francis and indigenous activists when calling for the protection of the environment and for action on climate change. People who are down by the border calling for the care of immigrants are joined by any number of Catholic priests or nuns who've been doing that kind of work around the border for decades, if not centuries. If you want to talk about the um, economics, I mean, you know, the, the, the progressive movement in this country, what we now call the progressive movement, arguably emerged out of uh, a religious movement 
coming and that came around the turn of the century among Protestants um, called the Social Gospel Movement. And to this day, when Occupy Wall Street happened back in 2011, there was a group of quote unquote protest chaplains that were already at the site when the um, when the first activist got there in New York City. I say all that because that to me is what the religious left's power really is. They are a very strong, articulate, moral voice. In, um, in progressive circles and have been for quite some time. And when you have someone like Donald Trump, who again, from the left's perspective, has ceded the moral high ground, then these sorts of activists take up a lot more oxygen. What's interesting now, too, is that as the left continues to diversify, um, you know, both in, in demographically and religiously, different kinds of people are occupying spaces. So, for instance, one prominent leader of um, different aspects of the religious left is Linda Sarsour, who, is, of course, was one of the co-chairs of the Women's March, and she's a prominent Muslim activist, right? And so you have different kinds of religious groups who are occupying this space, um, often in an activist group, um, in an activist role. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't also play an important role electorally. Now, as mentioned, black Protestants, um, you know, are, are arguably one of the core reasons that um, Doug Jones is a Democratic senator from the state of Alabama. Because one, you had such a horrible candidate in Roy Moore, who, you know, even the Republican Party did not want um, on that ticket. And then you have um, some a group of black Protestants, and particularly black church-going Protestants in the state of Alabama, who showed up in droves to help elect a Democrat. So we've seen that that demographic can pay um, can have div- pay dividends for Democrats in a huge way. But so too is the case for, say, Muslims in um, the state of Michigan. There's a massive Muslim population in and around Detroit and in Dearborn, Michigan, and that's why you see some candidates. Not trying to take time to, you know, uh, converse with this community to try to hopefully, you know, flip from their perspective, flip Michigan blue this next go round. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if in the general election you see whoever ends up becoming the Democratic nominee spend a little time in Dearborn, Michigan, um, you know, either with a rally or with, you know, meet and greets with Muslim uh, clerics and officials um, and leaders to try to, like, court that demographic to help that you know, help folks show up. Um, on election day there as well. So again, I say all that because the religious left is arguably more complicated than the religious right in terms of religious diversity. And that requires, there's no one size fits all approach to courting this demographic, but it can pay uh, dividends for candidates who are seeking to get uh, articulate a strong moral voice and to help run up the score around the edges of any election. So there are two candidates that uh, I did want to drill into, one who will be eventually a part of the election and one who won't. I believe Marianne Williamson has uh, lost her spot at the debate for mm-hmm. this go-around, although she might uh, be able to requalify for subsequent debates. And for what she brought to the table with open talk of uh, dark psychic forces, meeting things with love, she is one that has invoked and has mentioned God uh, more often on Twitter than any other candidate. Are we going to be losing something with the loss of Marianne Williamson on the stage? In terms of (laughs) invoking God, yes and no. I mean, Marianne Williamson is unapologetic about, you know, one, using the term religious left. She used that term with me both times that I've interviewed her. And two, uh, about connecting her politics to spirituality. I mean, you have to remember Marianne Williamson 
um, was a very successful spiritual author, and that's kind of how she achieved acclaim long before she became uh, a congressional candidate and then since a pre- and now a presidential candidate. So her comfort with God talk was, was something she did professionally for quite some time. Um, and I think, you know, she got a lot of attention, interestingly, from conservatives after the first two debates um, for her performances there. But I will note, she has performed very well among religious progressives um, when she's shown up to those events. So, for instance, she spoke, she was one of the nine presidential candidates who showed up to uh, a candidate's forum that was run by the Poor People's Campaign, which is um, an, an effort that is run by both William Barber, um, who spoke at the 2016 Democratic National Convention, actually just spoke um, a few days ago at the summer session of the Democratic National Committee, um, and also Reverend Liz Theo Harris. And when she spoke there, um, I wasn't the only journalist to note that she did very well with that group of primarily faith-based activists. And then um, when I went to Wild Goose, which is this uh, festival for primarily deeply progressive Christians in the hinterlands of Western North Carolina, um, several candidates were invited. Um, The only one who ended up showing up um, was Miriam Williamson. And she spoke right after William Barber. And she played very well with that crowd as well. Now, whether or not that would transition into votes for her is clearly... Uh, another question altogether. But in terms of being able to resonate with progressive um, Christians and, and progressive people of faith generally, that is something that she claimed um, pretty fervently as something that she was willing to do unapologetically. I mean, I think just, just in the last um, 24 hours, she's been tweeting about how she feels the Democratic Party has done itself a disservice by um, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to remember the exact language, but essentially belittling um, people of faith and religious voters. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it, it should be noted that her spiritual beliefs are not uncontroversial and that um, there are people within progressive religious communities who have also taken issue with some of the religious arguments or at least spiritual arguments that she's made. But it, it goes without saying, if you've seen her in a room with some um, you know, the progressive people of faith, she, she does pretty well. And that will be something that will not be on the debate stage this go round. So one candidate who will almost certainly be seen in the election of 2020 would be President Donald Trump. And mm-hmm. his relationship with communities of faith and with faith in general is storied, complicated, and difficult to understand in many ways between providing an ecosystem for the rise of Christian nationalism, uh, messianic tendencies, um, at least language and rhetoric, and uh, almost a sense of opportunism as regards to religious causes. We've seen things that we couldn't possibly expect, and there's no indication that we'll stop seeing things that we didn't expect or haven't seen before. But as it regards people of faith, the pluralism that you've been talking about, new and old, what are we seeing about those votes on that would have been going to Donald Trump that may not, based on his policies about immigration, based on uh, LGBTQ rights, based on a variety of things that people were willing to give him a shot at the first, but maybe they won't give him a shot at the second go around? Yeah, um, from from you know my own reporting and and from reading reporting from my um, 
colleagues in this field? That's an interesting question because the, the, the first part that needs to be made clear is that the people who were animated by Christian nationalism in 2016 as voiced by Trump and his support and, and some of his faith-based supporters are probably going to vote for him again, right? Like I don't, I, I, you know, those people are probably going to stay in his camp irrespective of whether or not, uh, um, you know, they, they, they take issue with a couple of policies. But there has been a small, but let's remember, Donald Trump won the presidency by what was ultimately around 80,000 votes spread across three states. And that's, that's, that's like, you know, that's a baseball stadium. That's not a ton of people. So small shifts can have a big impact on a, very, on a potentially close election. And so, no, there have been evangelicals on the margins who have been increasingly frustrated by um, Trump, particularly um, a a whole stream of evangelicalism that cares very deeply about both immigrants and refugees in particular. I mean, lest we forget, you know, there are of the nine organizations that resettle refugees that are allowed into this country, um, six of them are faith-based, and one of them is an evangelical Christian organization, and has been, you know, for they've been doing this work for a long time, and so that community has become increasingly frustrated with Trump. Now, does that mean they would flock to another candidate, um, a Democrat? That's less clear. But would they stay home or or support, you know, uh, somebody who's primarying Trump or a third-party candidate this go round? Um, it, it, you know, the Evan McMullen effect that he had in Utah, could that spread to other parts of the country? I think there's real chance for that. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the, uh, the, the weird thing about our electoral system is that um, because of the Electoral College, the, the, the actual number of voters who matter the most in terms of political capital are often the ones that change their minds and, the, and particularly the ones that change their minds in the Rust Belt. Those are just the votes that tend to have the most outsized impact at this point in American history. And so that puts you in concert with a lot of white, white mainline Protestants and a lot of white Catholics. And why that's important is that whereas Trump's support among white evangelical Protestants has remained relatively strong throughout the course of his presidency, his support among white Catholics and white, uh, and white mainline Protestants has fluctuated wildly throughout the course of um, you know, the last few years. And so those are people who would need to be appealed to on multiple occasions, I think, for a lot of reasons. You know, a voter in Youngstown, Ohio, or, you know, in the outskirts of Pittsburgh um, would be most most moved to vote for somebody else if the economy wasn't doing particularly well. But if you appeal to those voters, you know, through a Catholic lens or the mainline voters through a mainline Protestant lens, which I think um, Pete Buttigieg is arguably already doing, um, or and, and Julian Castro has talked about his Catholicism since the outset of his campaign. It's plausible that you could peel off a few voters who were, you know, maybe supported Trump for one reason or another, but aren't really stoked about the um, his policies regarding immigrants or refugees um, or even the environment. And I think it, it it's one of those things. It's just one tool in a campaign director's toolbox. But I wouldn't count it out. You know, we we have seen those white mainline Protestant and white. Um, Catholic numbers fluctuate in the Rust Belt during Trump's candidacy um, and Trump's um, Trump's presidency. So, if I were um, running a campaign, that would be someone I would target for either both Trump's campaign and Democrats, because that's something that you would want to shore up or chip away at, um, depending on you know whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. Lots to watch. Lots to watch. Jack, thank you for joining us on Beliefs. We'll look forward to you, more of your reporting on this. Thanks so much for having me. Our guest is Jack Jenkins, 
national reporter for Religion News Service. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is our producer. The theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker, and thank you for listening.